Good morning, fellow laborers. Good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. It's a joy to be here with you this morning, and welcome to our friends who are able to be here with us uh, today. We are glad that you're here uh, to celebrate this Lord's Day with us. We have a new memory verse this month. We start, it is November today, and so we'll begin. If you look in your weekly, there should be a bookmark in there with this month's memory verse on it. And so this being our first Sunday, we will say our verse uh, together. It's 1 John 4, 7 and 8. And we had a, just so you know, we did have a, a vigorous debate in the office this week. And we've determined that we are going to say beloved and not beloved, okay? So, but, but we, we, won't, we won't be too strict about it, all right? Here we go. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Wonderful. We are continuing in our study of the book of John. It's a study that we've been doing now. I think this is, uh, we're, we're 40 some weeks into the study and I was encouraged today. Uh, one of our parishioners shared with me that, that there have been other pastors who have spent longer periods of time in shorter books. And so that's good. I'm encouraged to know that. And we, we are going to, after this week, today we're going to finish John chapter 11 and then we're going to call a time out on the gospel of John and we're going to come back to John after the Christmas season. The next few weeks, we're actually going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes together as a church, and I promise we're going to do it in three weeks. And now you're probably thinking, how's he going to pull that off? The Lord's going to do it, all right? He's going to do it, and I'm looking forward to going through that book with you. And then we'll begin our Advent series, and concluding our Advent series, we'll have Christmas. And uh, following Christmas, we'll do a service right after New Year, and then we'll jump right back in and start in John chapter 12 after the new year. Now, as we have been going through the Gospel of John, something occurred to me this week. We have been awfully hard on the Pharisees, have we not? I mean, it, it, it really, you can't get through the Gospel of John. You cannot get to Jesus without going through the Pharisees and dealing with with the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. And, and here we are, we're in John chapter 11, we're dealing with this resurrection of Lazarus, this miraculous, wonderful thing that Jesus did. This is the painting I referred to you uh, last week of Juvenet that's in Paris. And, and Lazarus is, as you're sitting on the left, he's coming up out of the tomb, the, the disciples are surrounding him, and you see uh, Martha and Mary around Jesus there, who's raising him up from the dead. And there were many people who were present at this miracle. Some of the people who probably wanted to do the greatest amount of harm to Jesus, the Pharisees. And I believe with good purpose, we've been hard on the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a warning for us, church, that we would keep from taking crowns and building empires and seeking the glory and praise of men here on earth. And you know, I, I want to take a moment before we dive in this morning to share that I've found personally for myself in, in just my short time here on earth that there are times my behaviors 
and my attitudes and my actions are more in line with the attitudes and the behaviors of the Pharisees than the attitudes and the behaviors of my Savior. And I don't know about you, but as I stand up here today, I'm a person who can be self-absorbed. I'm a person who can be ungrateful, who can be full of arrogance. I can be harsh. I can be abrasive, dishonest, corrupt, even hypocritical. I can be found with an appetite for the praise of man rather than the glory of God. And so why are we hard on the Pharisees? Why do we spend so much time talking about their deficiencies and their shortcomings and the challenges that they really uh, oppose or, or bring to Jesus? Because when I'm confronted by the behavior of the Pharisees, I'm confronted by my own worst behaviors. And I find that I am not so much unlike them at times. The worst of myself is exposed before my eyes in the behaviors of the Pharisees. I can't escape it. And so when Jesus confronts and rebukes and redirects and chides and corrects and chastises the Pharisees, I see these interactions as reminders for myself. Because if I'm honest with you as I stand here again this morning, there are days that I would rather put Jesus to death again than die myself. That's the truth. If and when you see any good in me as I stand before you this morning, you need to know that it is not me, but it's Christ through me and in me. There are no crowns and there are no empires here on this earth for me. There's no glory for me to receive. I want none of it. No praise. Everything belongs to Jesus. Everything. This is why I'm hard on the Pharisees. I'm hard on the Pharisees because primarily what I hate in them, I hate in myself. And the behaviors that I see in them, sometimes I see in myself. And perhaps, I, this, this occurred to me this week and it really hit me hard. Why, why does God put the Pharisees and their example in the Bible? Why is it there for us? We're going to be confronted with it head on today. We've got to deal with this. Perhaps the lasting legacy, the lasting gift of the Pharisees to the church, the greatest influence that they could have is a reminder for us, church, of how not to live, how not to act, and how not to behave when Jesus is in our midst. And Jesus is in our midst, is he not? Amen? He's with us. He's with us. And today we are going to uncover the religious leaders' treachery. We're going to see their plot to kill Jesus. We're going to witness the end result of man who is on earth for his own crowns, for his own empire, for his own glory to the praise of man. And we're going to see and confront how our most disgusting behaviors hold no sway or power over a God who is sovereign and powerful. And God is going to accomplish exactly what he desires in spite of man's sinfulness. That's just who he is. The office of high priest, in fact, the chief priest himself, though corrupted and hijacked by the wiles of the evil one, will perform exactly as God intends as one of his instruments. The fix is in. Man has gathered to scheme and plot the death of Jesus. But God will receive the glory and the world will know that Jesus is king. Let's pray. 
Father, as we come to your word this morning, this is a difficult text. It's a text that we wrestle with because in it we see much about how man made a plot and a plan to put your son Jesus to death. But Lord, we know that even in this text this morning, because your word is living, because it's active, because it's powerful, that you have a purpose for it. That you intend to use it to do something in our lives and we gather as a congregation today in this corporate activity of the study of your word and we prepare our hearts and minds for what you have in your word for us. Lord, we pray you would use your word now in this time to help us grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. That your name would be honored and you would receive the glory as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to be in John chapter 11 today. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 45 to 57. John chapter 11, 45 to 57. The end of the chapter. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Many Jews had believed the resurrection of Lazarus was convincing to them, both in their hearts and in their minds, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. The words of Jesus, the works of Jesus, they were beginning to merit greater influence within the Jewish circles. And for some, their lives were changing. And immediately, right from the beginning of our text this morning, we see the division. There's a lot of division in John, but here we have the division between those who saw and believe and the division of those who were still in doubt, were still skeptical. Verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. When I read that, it sounded a lot like what happens in our home when there's criminal activity. 
You know, I mean, that's, that's what happens when there's criminal activity. Somebody goes and tells someone who can do something about it. I've been wronged. My brother tackled me too hard. My sister did this, or this happened, or that happened. This got taken. This got stolen. This got broken. I need to go tell somebody who can do something about it. And that's what's going on here. They're going to tell the authorities it's the same thing. Friends, there's always going to be skeptics in the church. These were fellow Jews. These were people who identified as part of the Jewish nation, yet they did not recognize Jesus as their Savior. And when when the rubber meets the road, and one realizes that following Jesus isn't a game that we play, but it literally means giving up our own lives. There is faith for those who believe, and there is fear for those who are unbelieving. That's what's going on here, friends. Did they believe? Jesus had just raised this man from the dead. They had seen it with their own eyes. Did they believe? And if they believed, then their lives needed to change dramatically. And for some, there was faith and there was a change in life. But for others, there was fear and unbelief. And their fear motivated their decision to go run and tell the principals. You've got to tell somebody. You almost get the picture of a child tugging on the robe of the Pharisees. Hey, what are you going to do about this? Tapping them in their shoulders. Do something, do something. Look, at this guy's disrupting everything. How dare Jesus offend the throne of death in their eyes. The Pharisees, they already feared Jesus and they reviled the influence that he was having on who they perceived to be their people. Isn't it interesting how the Pharisees perceived the people to be theirs? Their people. Hmm. So when we read in verse 47 that they gathered the council to deal with the situation, we should not be surprised at what is going on here. This is, the word in the Greek here that's here is actually it's the first time in the Gospel of John that we see the Sanhedrin. That word for council is the word for Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin is coming together to determine what to do about Jesus. And this is very important. It's very important because in the eyes of Rome, the Pharisees had no power to make judicial decisions on their own. They needed the Sanhedrin. It was the Sanhedrin that was to govern and oversee all of the Jewish internal affairs. And this was an internal Jewish matter. Jesus was being disruptive. Get your guy under control. Do something about him. That's what's going on. And it was the high priest, particularly the chief priest who ruled over the council of the Sanhedrin. Both he and other influential council members had their hands deep in the Roman coffers. And they had their hands deep in those coffers because they desired to protect their own little empire and their own little crowns that they had accumulated. They were able to exist peaceably under Roman rule because of how they took care of the Roman government. And it would be in their best interest to make anything that would disrupt their comfortable existence just go away. And so they gather, somewhat embarrassed, probably somewhat desperate, to put an end to this disruptive sideshow 
that Jesus had created. Take a look again at their dialogue. Look at verses 47 and 48. Their dialogue is so telling. And if you like to underline in your Bibles, I'm going to give you a few things to underline and highlight here. Verse 47 and 48. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take both what? Our place and our nation. We don't have to look any further than the personal pronouns that are being used here to see what's going on, do we? If you like to underline, there's a few words here. The we's in verse 47 and verse 48 and the R's in verse 48. Very telling about what's happening here. Jesus was single-handedly destroying their comfortable little empire. And they had no idea what to do about it. What are we going to do? If we let him go on, everyone will believe. Hmm. I actually, in my notes this week, in the office, when I read that line, I had to put a little, everybody knows what LOL means, right? Laugh out loud. I had to put a little LOL over that line because as if, as if they had any real power or authority to stop Jesus. They had no idea. None. There's a warning here for us, church. Let's not put our hope in our self-perceived control of situations in life that are uncomfortable to us. They did not have the control they thought they had. This is an illusion of control in their minds. If we don't do something, then this might happen. But that's not the case. God is God. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's on His throne. And He's going to accomplish exactly what He wants to accomplish through these people. God is in control. Things get uncomfortable. And it's okay. We walk through uncomfortable seasons together. I just came through an uncomfortable season it wasn't fun taking a step back from doing something I've done for the last 17 years with great joy. It was very uncomfortable to not be as involved as I had been in the past in the football program. But you know, for whatever reason, this is the Lord's timing in my life right now and it's where He has me. And it's uncomfortable and it's okay. But you know, if we have a bunch of crowns to protect and we have an empire to protect and we have thrones to protect, we might get a bit touchy when something comes that could threaten them, right? Church, let's let Jesus rule on the throne of our hearts and in the throne of our lives. And then we have nothing to fear when something comes that might disrupt and upset everything. To be honest, if God is always at work for our good and His glory, then faith must overcome fear when situations arise that are beyond our ability to understand or control. Faith must overcome fear. And the best possible thing that could happen to the Jews would be the very thing that they feared the most, wouldn't it? The very thing that they feared the most in verse 47 and 48 would be the best possible thing that could happen. And indeed, the Romans did come. They did come. And they took their place, the temple, and they desecrated it. And they displaced the people 
removing their standing as a nation. What they feared the most happened anyway. And if it happened so that God could raise it all back up even better and stronger, establishing a kingdom built on the cornerstone of Jesus, an empire that Jesus would build that the gates of hell could not prevail over. Isn't it good? Isn't it good? Holding on to our perceived places and positions only glorifies our own strength. Church, it's in the letting go where the glory of God and the power of Jesus is most clearly seen in the letting go. Sometimes we hold on to things so tight, trying to control them. Just let go. Jesus is in control. Believing in Jesus here for the Jews that actually believed and were following him. For many, guys that we're going to meet a little bit later as we continue through John. Guys like Nicodemus. This was disruptive for them. It was disruptive for their position and for their place in society. It was disruptive for their priorities. And friends, believing Jesus is disruptive. It should disrupt our priorities. It should disrupt our behaviors and the comfortable patterns of our lives and our attitudes. Jesus does not promise us comfort. He promises us victory. He does not promise us comfort. He promises us victory. And so there will be times, and there are times, and perhaps many, as you sit here today, recognize you're in a time right now that's a little bit disruptive and uncomfortable in your relationship with Jesus. That's okay. That's okay. Man, He uses those seasons sometimes for explosive growth in our lives. There's a caveat. In order to experience this victory that's promised, we must die. Giving up that which is nothing in terms of eternal value to gain that which is everything. And for the Jews, would they be willing to give up that which they could not keep? Their little empire, their little place in their Roman society that they had. For that which they could not lose their eternal life. And how about that question redirected to us, church? Are we willing to give up that which we cannot keep in order to gain that which we cannot lose? I believe there was a famous missionary by the name of Jim Elliott that asked that question. The great arbitrator of Judaism will now offer his wisdom, and we're about to meet this character in our passage. His name is Caiaphas. And when I see Caiaphas in the New Testament, I see one of the most vilest men in all of the Gospels. He's an imposter. He's hijacked the office of chief priest. And he's about to give his opinion on the matter. Speaking as though he's speaking from the mouth of God. Remember, that was the role of the high priest. Here's a picture of Caiaphas rebuking Jesus. Caiaphas was the high priest, the chief priest, For 12 years, he had succeeded his brother-in-law, Eleazar. He enjoyed a luxurious lifestyle in Jerusalem at the cost of the people he served. His home was large enough to accommodate the entirety of the Sanhedrin. Do you remember the council, the illegal council that they had to try Jesus, took place in Caiaphas' home. 
Now the Sanhedrin was a council of men that was made up of over 70 people. How large and how luxurious must have Caiaphas lived. Let's not pretend that it was not in Caiaphas' best interest to see the situation with Jesus end swiftly so that he could comfortably go on at keeping his place as a dog in the lap of the Roman government. That's all he wanted, just to be comfortable. His lack of patience, his overwhelming arrogance, they're all evidence in the first words that we see him speak. Look at verse 49. This is Caiaphas, friends, summed up in one sentence. You know nothing at all. Words of Caiaphas. Verse 49. Verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Hmm. Perhaps truer words have never been spoken. They could have possibly been said in a gentler and kinder tone. But aren't they true nonetheless? Their behavior indeed indicated that they truly did know nothing of Jesus' character. This is not what Caiaphas is talking about, though. Jesus was dangerous to the Jewish political position in the Roman government. Their agreement between Rome and the Jews largely looked like this. If the Romans would say to the Jews, if you behave and just stay in your corner and do not cause us too much anxiety, too much consternation, and you pay your taxes, you can worship whoever you want, however you want. When Jesus began turning over tables, removing money changers, threatening verbally to destroy the temple they carefully built, the empire of the Sanhedrin began to crack. And at first, many were skeptical. To them, Jesus was just another religious zealot, a radical. But when he started healing the lame and the blind, forgiving sins, raising the dead, many began to take notice. Some began to follow, and some had even started to believe. Rome had put the Jews on notice. Get control of that guy, Caiaphas. Get control of him. He's being disruptive. He's causing headaches for us. And the Sanhedrin is essentially saying, yo, this Jesus, not our guy. Not our guy. Don't pin him on us. But Caiaphas knows. Here's the thing. Caiaphas cannot make a ruling on Jesus unless he has the full support of the council. His decision on what he has to do with to Jesus or with Jesus, has to be unanimous. There's 70-some men in that room. He has to convince every one of them. Now get 70 people together and try to convince them of something, right? You know how challenging that would be. So his argument is strong. You're going to lose everything. Everything that we've worked so hard to build, this little empire that we have here within the Roman government, the freedom that we enjoy to worship the way we want and to be left alone, you're going to lose it all if we don't do something about this guy. And isn't it better that this one man should die instead of losing our standing as an entire nation? 
Now take a look at verses 51 and 52. This is interesting. He, speaking of Caiaphas in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. Something greater is going on here, is it not? But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children, the children of God who are scattered abroad. It was the job of the high priest to represent the best interest of the people. Caiaphas had no idea that God was using him as his instrument to bring about the death of the only begotten son. And John wants you, the gospel writer John, he wants you to see the irony here. This passage is full, this text is full of tragic irony for Caiaphas. He's prophesying without even trying it. He is representing the best interest of the people even though his intentions were to protect his own empire. The offices of prophet, priest, and king, church, they never belong to man. They always belong to God. And just as God did throughout all of history, he was using those offices, the office of chief priest here, which he had ordered to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And it was actually Caiaphas who knew nothing. Isn't it funny? Caiaphas says, you know nothing. But we look and we know Caiaphas was truly the one who knew nothing. But he was not a puppet. He had made his plan, his own plan. He communicated his plan to the people. He was going to act. He was going to act on his plan and see Jesus put to death just as he intended. And in this act, don't we see this beautiful imagery from the book of Genesis becoming clear? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You remember who said that? Joseph. To his brothers who had him sold into slavery. Mm. And here it is, church. God can even use man's own sinfulness to accomplish his good purposes for his glory. He is using Caiaphas here. Caiaphas is God's instrument in this. And Caiaphas has no idea that his proclamation is anticipating the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ. No idea. Caiaphas is a wolf, isn't he? Remember John chapter 10 and John chapter 11, how beautifully connected they are? Isn't Caiaphas a perfect example of a wolf? Here's a guy that's supposed to be a religious leader. He's supposed to be and, and was probably loved and respected amongst the people as someone who had his self put together spiritually. Spiritually elite. Religiously elite. Top of the class. With honors. But he was a wolf. 
the good shepherd would die. And not only for the Jewish nation, but look at the terminology here at the end of verse 52. Taking us back into John 10. There's beautiful harmony here between these two shepherds. The shepherd, through his death, will gather all of the scattered sheep throughout the world and bring them into his sheepfold. One of the primary themes of John's gospel is that Jesus is Savior to the world. Not just the nation Israel, to the world. For God so loved the world. John chapter 10, verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is doing exactly what John 1 told us that he would set out to do. He is gathering his children. John chapter 1 said that this was one of the purposes Jesus was coming. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children. That's what he's doing. Children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And through his death, church, through Jesus' death, many sons and many daughters scattered all over the world would be brought into glory. Caiaphas has no idea that he's being used of God, even though his intentions are perfectly evil in this scheme. It's amazing. So what happens? Jesus escapes into the wilderness or moves into the wilderness, verses 53 to 57. So from that day, they had made plans to put him to death. It's from this point forward, church, that we see Jesus' private ministry beginning. Jesus' public ministry at the end of John 11 is over. John chapter 12, all the way up through now, we begin to look at his private ministry amongst his friends, his last words to his disciples. He's off. He no longer is walking openly in verse 54 among the Jews. But he goes to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim where he stayed with the disciples. And now Passover is coming. It's at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. And they're looking for Jesus saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he not come to the feast at all? And the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that he should let them know so that they might arrest him. He had gathered the votes needed. Caiaphas, he was successful. He had enough support from the Sanhedrin to put Jesus to death. But Jesus knew their schemes and no longer allowed himself to walk openly among them. Just because the fix was in and they had determined to kill Jesus didn't mean it would happen on their own timing. It's a perfect example here that everything that's happening leading up to the death of Jesus, God is in full and perfect control over. Just as God was using Caiaphas, he'd also orchestrate all the other events and moving pieces in the procession to the cross. 
Jesus moved on to the wilderness. It's a fitting place for him to prepare for his final days on earth. Ephraim, if, if you've been, some of you have been to Israel, some of you maybe have seen Ephraim. Ephraim sits up on a hill 13 miles outside of Jerusalem. In fact, you can see Jerusalem from where Jesus was in the wilderness of Ephraim. He could see, he was protected, he could see if people were coming towards him. It was a safe place. The Passover is at hand. It's the third and final Passover that's mentioned in John's Gospel. Jerusalem is full of people. We've seen this over and over again in John as we've been together. Right There's a feast and a festival. Jerusalem gets full of people. The town is buzzing. The city's buzzing. And who is the talk of the town once again? Jesus. And the chief priests and Pharisees had made it known that if anyone see Jesus or know of his whereabouts... They should let them know so that they could arrest him immediately. They were looking for quick and decisive action. However, when we pick back up our series following the Christmas season, we will see God's perfect timing for Jesus' life. Jesus will celebrate the Passover, but with a different group of people and in a place other than Jerusalem. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? In church, I would say... Jesus calls us to a faith that conquers fear. Fear of what man can do to us. And church, if if we're living to protect our own empires and to keep our own crown safe, it's it's not a great place to be, church. All the glory, all the honor, everything in this world belongs to Jesus and is only owed to Him. And I think it's appropriate today as our elders move towards the back. They're going to come this morning. We're going to share communion together. What a perfect message to lead into communion. The plot to break break Jesus' body and spill His blood has been set. And as our elders move to the back and come forward, we're going to take some time to pray prepare our hearts to receive communion as we reflect with great joy and thankfulness the gift of God and His Son Jesus. The communion table at Calvary Monument Bible Church is open to all who claim to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. If you're here with us as a guest today and you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, He is your Lord and Savior, we'd invite you to participate with us today. But if you're here today and you have never made a profession of faith, you do not know Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, we would just ask that you allow the bread and the cup to pass by. Don't feel any kind of pressure to participate in that with us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth. Lord, I thank you for the example of the Pharisees. That they serve to us, Lord, an example of what not to do, how not to live. And they're a constant reminder to us, Lord, that it all belongs to you. And Jesus, I pray as we prepare to take communion today that we would take a few moments to examine our hearts perhaps wrestling with the conviction of some of our own empires, some of our own crowns. 
We would confess them before you, Jesus. Lay them at your feet. Perhaps your word today would be a reminder that they're not for us. But they're for you. And so, Lord, the good and precious gifts that you do give us here on earth, we pray that they would be used for your glory and for your honor. Not our own. Lord, challenge our hearts and our minds today. Help us to love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.